Well, I can't see. There we go. That's better. Okay. Wow. Uh, the sheer audacity of, if not the arrogance, of the two former fishermen, James and John. And while they're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus, they came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your left and one at your right, when you come into your glory. Now, when you were a child or a youth, can you imagine going up to your mom and dad and saying, Mom, Dad, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. I don't know what my dad would have done if I'd have done that. What if you went up to your professor, your department chair, your boss, and asked that or said that? You know, I'm going to clergy conference next week, you know, the gathering of all the clergy of the diocese for a few days. Bishop Doyle will be there, and I just said, I could walk up to Bishop Doyle in the dining, dining room one night and just say, Bishop Doyle, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. You know, that would go over. It does, it does seem arrogant. It does seem presumptuous. But Jesus is noncommittal. He says, you know, well, what do you want me to do for you? They say, sit at your left, sit at your right in your glory. And then Jesus tells them, you don't know what you are asking. But I can tell you this, he says. You will drink the same cup and receive the same baptism with which I am baptized. And as for the rest of it, the places in the kingdom are appointed by God. He denies that he has the power to give James and John these prestigious seats in the kingdom of God. The power to appoint is for God alone. And then instead of getting angry with the disciples or somehow you know, holding them up to mock them as examples of bad discipleship, Jesus uses the opportunity to use a cliche as a teaching moment. He says to all the disciples, you know among the Gentiles those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Who wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And this is the case because of who Jesus is and what he will do. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I have wondered what motivated James and John to make this request because they completely missed the point of what Jesus had just taught them in previous verses that we didn't hear read. You know, while on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus told the disciples what was to happen to him. And he said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. You know, Jesus had just taught them that. The words are like hanging in the air. And then they come up to him and make this request. It's like they have no clue as to what Jesus is about. So I've wondered what their, what, what their motivation was. What were they thinking? Were they thinking, if this is all going to go down, then we want to have the good seats in the kingdom. Or maybe they felt a sense of power due to their relationship with Jesus. They were part of Jesus' inner circle along with Peter. If Jesus goes away, what becomes of, what becomes of them? Or maybe they were trying to prove something to their father back there on the Sea of Galilee. You remember that 
They were in their boat mending the nets and Jesus came up to them and called them to follow him. And they left their dad, their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and went and followed Jesus. Now reflecting on James and John, I thought about a character from a TV show. The TV show is Ted Lasso. Anybody seen Ted Lasso? A few nods? Okay, all right, we got good, good. Better than the 7.30 service. Uh, no, one, no one had seen it. Uh, but I knew that would be the case. Uh, it's on Apple TV. Not everybody has Apple TV. But Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso, the character I'm thinking about in that show is Nate Shelley. Uh, the character Ted Lasso, though, is the coach of an English football team, a soccer team to us Americans. Uh, he had been the coach of an American football team, actual American football. And Ted is folksy and optimistic. He practices kindness even to those folks who aren't particularly kind to him. And there's an assortment of owners, managers, players who all have ambitions or nursing hurts and grievances. Some are arrogant, some are profane, uh, particularly the character named Roy. Uh, so if you watch this show, be, be, be mindful uh, that there's some profanity. Uh, there is one character named Nate, Nate Shelley, who begins the series as the employee who maintains the grounds, the pitch, and cleans the players' uniforms. And he's a man that doesn't get much respect. In the first episode, Ted Lasso asks him his name, and Ted, Nate mentions that no one had ever asked him his name before. And then by the end of the first season, Nate, who had been the employee who maintained the grounds and the uniforms, is standing along the sidelines with Ted Lasso and the other coaches as an assistant coach. He makes, he makes a journey, and that journey continues in season two, uh, which ended just a few weeks ago, and I won't reveal any spoilers in case you haven't seen the ending, but I did read an interview with the actor who plays uh, Nate. Uh, the actor's name is Nick Mohammed. He's actually a comedian. Uh, he said, of all the actors on the show, he said, every member of the cast has a little journey in season two. And that often that's not the case of minor parts where your job is to be a, be a constant so the major players can change and adapt and grow. But everyone in Ted Lasso goes somewhere. And so through the course of season two, Nate goes somewhere. And the interviewer in this interview observed, so far this season, Nate seems to be feeling disregarded and not afforded the respect he thinks he deserves. And Nick Muhammad, the actor, said, What's interesting now is this is a character who still has the same demons and insecurities, but he, now he's got this position of power. So through the second season, we watched Nate wrestle and struggle with his newfound power. And in one episode, he tries to use it to acquire a reservation at a prominent table at a fancy restaurant to, uh, to impress his father. Now, in regards to power, Jesus says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be slave of all. And so here Jesus is introducing a new way of being in the world, a new way of leading, of creating something new, an alternative to the way the world typically works and how those in positions of power and authority carry out their work. And they carry out their work as servant leaders. You've all heard the term servant leadership or servant leader. Well, it's been around since around 1970. 
It uh, goes back to a 1970 essay by Robert Greenleaf, who had been the, or who was, uh, the, he ran the leadership development program at IBM. And he said in this, he said in this essay that the servant leader is servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. And then the choice can be made whether to lead or not. So when a servant chooses to lead, they don't focus on themselves. Greenleaf says, a servant leader focuses primarily on the growth and well-being of the people and the communities to which they belong. He said, while traditionally leadership generally involves the accumulation and exercise of power by one at the top of the pyramid, servant leadership is different. A servant leader shares power, puts the needs of others first, and helps people develop and perform as highly as possible. That's servant leadership. As does Greenleaf's model of servant leadership, Jesus upends that pyramid. You know, for those who wish to lead, for those who desire to be great, for those who desire to be first, it doesn't come from the exercise of power at the top or from sitting at the left or at the right of Jesus. It begins with service. The concept of servant leadership works across all kinds of organizations, you know, soccer teams, football teams, baseball teams, at school, at scouts, at work, at church, and families. And so if we are worried about being great or being first, well, Jesus shows us another way. And if we are looking for a new way of being and a new way of leading in the world, then Jesus shows us one. Jesus takes that impertinent question of two of his disciples and turns it into a teaching moment about the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God has no room in it for rulers who lord it over others, nor does it have room for great tyrants. The way of the kingdom is the way of the servant. So whoever wishes to be great, whoever wishes to be first, whoever wishes to lead, must be servant of all. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Amen.